Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And as you know, we have a channel on the network called the New Books Network Seminar. And on that channel, we feature books that we believe will be of interest to everyone who listens to the NBN. Today, we're featuring a book called Slavery in the University, Histories and Legacies. I know that many of you who listen to the NBN are college teachers, and certainly most of you have been to universities. One of the editors of the book, Leslie Harris, and the host of New Books in African American Studies, Adam McNeil, had a very interesting discussion about the book that I thought all of you would like to hear. Without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I have Dr. Leslie M. Harris on to discuss her new co-edited volume, Slavery and the University, Histories and Legacies, published by the University of Georgia Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Harris. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. Outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, Before we get into your co-edited volume, can we hear about the genesis story of this particular project? Sure. And I, you know, it's tied, of course, to the larger movement on slavery in universities. And so I would have to say that there isn't a one genesis story for the project. Part of the work and influences that are reflected in the volume grew out of a broader reexamination of the history of slavery and the meaning of reparations. Um, of course, that's a conversation that's been ongoing since the end of slavery, but it heated up again in the late 1990s as scholars and activists began looking at institutions like banks and insurance companies as connected to slavery. And so that inspired people in various universities. Part of the influence is also, I would say, the end of apartheid in South Africa and the work of reconciliation, particularly represented by Bishop Desmond Tutu and others. And that highlighted on a global stage forms of reconciliation that have been ongoing for decades in other locations, but people became more aware of that. And then there were, of course, more immediately scholars and scholar activists in the late 90s and early 2000s. Most people think of Brown University, but even before Brown, uh, grad students and staff at Yale had investigated the ways the university celebrated its anti-slavery past while ignoring its slavery past. And then at Emory University, which is where I was when um, we began this work, Mark Auslander, for several years, had investigated not only the history of slavery, but also of the use of uh, black labor during the Jim Crow era and other forms of racism in the history of Emory University. Most immediately at Emory, I, um, in I guess, launched in 2005 um, something called the Transforming Community Project, which was a response to a year of uh, racial tension at Emory. Um, And a group of us began having conversations about the racial history of Emory and our experiences at Emory. And out of that came up with this idea to build a project that would give anyone in the university community the opportunity to learn about the history of race at Emory, which people felt they didn't know much about at all. 
and then um, think about how they wanted to take that knowledge into day-to-day activism. So I ran the tran- co-directed the Transforming Community Project for about six or seven years. We built on Mark Outlander's research and the research of community members and two postdocs we hired with poor foundation funding. And out of the Transforming Community Project, I also became involved and got to know people like uh, Jim Campbell at Brown, who was heading up the work there, Al Brophy at uh, University of Alabama, who um, uh, led the first effort, we believe, in the nation where a university body apologized for slavery. In that case, the faculty senate apologized for its participation in the punishment of enslaved people in the antebellum period. And so the three of us um, uh, uh, decided to put together a conference called Slavery in the University Histories and Legacies. And so that conference um, included us as part of the program committee, my close friend and colleague, Susan Ashmore, who is also at Emory University, and um, the staff of the Transforming Community Project. We sent out a call for papers, and we ended up having what was really, I think, a three-day conference started with a keynote conversation that uh, had Ruth Simmons um, of Brown, president of Brown, uh, James Wagner, who was president of Emory at the time, and Earl Lewis, who was a provost at Emory. And then um, uh, two full days of panel discussions um, from different scholars all over the country and even some international scholars about histories of slavery and a few about histories of Jim Crow labor or other forms of racialized labor at universities. Um, And then a Sunday session at the original campus of Emory University, Oxford College, which is where, which was the site of slavery at Emory, if you will. And so from those, uh, from that conference, we then invited people to contribute their papers for uh, inclusion in a possible volume. And then, you know, the way these things go, we selected some, some people decided not to contribute at, at the end, but we ended up with the essays um, in the volume. Great, great. So with that story in mind too, can you discuss with us, um, were all the contributors in the book uh, actually attendees at the 2011 conference? Most of them were. The only two, I think, that were not there, um, we invited Craig Wilder's um, essay. I think he couldn't make the conference, but of course, his work is just foundational. And also in terms of putting U.S. slavery or North American slavery in conversation with slavery in other parts of the America. So we invited him to contribute from his work for the lead essay. And then Al Brophy, of course, you know, had been working on these issues for a long time. And we asked him, Jim and I asked him to contribute from his work. And so he wrote an essay and contributed an essay to the volume. So I think those were the only two that weren't from people who participated in some way in the conference. Can you also tell us how the volume is organized, please? Right. So the first um, section of, of uh, the volume is a really good, well, first is a really good introduction um, uh, that uh, Jim Campbell uh, really uh, drafted. He probably knows as much as anyone about this movement um, and how it started. And then um, the first part of the volume is pretty much about the history of slavery, what um, slavery looked like on various college campuses, who was involved, who were enslaved, who were enslavers, which is not Sometimes it was individual faculty members who owned slaves. Sometimes the institutions owned slaves. Sometimes the institutions hired enslaved workers. So 
you know, gives a kind of survey of that. Also some of the intellectual roots of slavery, right? So Al's essay, for example, talks about um, the intellectual work that scholars did to support uh, racialized thinking and to, you know, to, to um, uphold slavery. Similarly, um, Patrick Jameson um, did an essay on debate clubs, the debates among students about slavery at Emory University and the ways in which they debated that. The second part of the volume is uh, looks more at uh, combines some of the some history, but also with kind of the activism that scholars or scholar activists or administrators took in um, not only uncovering the history, but what does it mean in terms of uh, teaching or in terms of running an institution or intellectual work. So, for example, uh, the lead essay in that section is. Um, uh, Ruth Simmons' essay discussing um, some of the history of slavery at Brown, but also what it means for institutions, intellectual, academic institutions to take on this work, why this is part of the work that we should do. Similarly, that section concludes with an essay by um, R. Owen Williams, who um, was an undergrad, uh, excuse me, a graduate student at Yale and then was president of Transylvania University in Kentucky. And he talks about his own um, activism as a graduate student at Yale around slavery, um, the history of slavery there, but then as a uh, president of an institution, how some of his views about um, renaming or taking down monuments um, have changed. Um, we also have an essay by uh, Elizabeth, uh, excuse me, Ellen Griffith Spears and James Hall about the University of Alabama that talks about the history not only of slavery, but also of Jim Crow and desegregation there and how those histories can be used pedagogically. So it's both a combination of the history, but also how then do we use this history? Um, and I think that that combination of doing research, you know, for the sake of knowing the history, but also how do we make the history part of uh, new scholarly agendas, new teaching agendas, and new ways to th- change the institution? I think that really reflects that this field is not simply about putting a book or another article on the shelf. It is about people wanting to live in a different way, to lead in a different way in higher education institutions. Most definitely. Most definitely. And speaking of higher education institutions, um, one of the questions I really had after reading the edited volume was about the practice of slavery on college campuses. You're dealing with varying geographies here. Transylvania and Yale are very different. <laughs> so can you describe to us as a preeminent slavery scholar, right, as we know you are, can you describe for us how slavery is practiced on college campuses as opposed to other sites of slavery which are more ensconced in the American imagination. Right. I mean, we in the United States really uh, only often only imagine slavery as on plantations, agricultural labor, you know, cotton, of course, that absorbs so much of the American imaginary and history, you know, our understanding of the history of slavery as the place where slaves are. But of course, you know, when I'm teaching slavery, I say slavery as a labor institution is infinitely adaptable. That has been true in human history, and it is no less true in the Americas. And importantly, it's no less true with African Americans. I think that there's a way in which 
Um, and this is not meant at all to disrespect the highly skilled labor that was necessary to do agricultural labor at all, um, because that in itself is a skill. A cotton, sugar, um, indigo, rice, all of those things uh, required a skill set and knowledge. But in the United States, we've often dismissed that particular skill set and also imagined that enslaved laborers could only do one kind of labor and that that labor was simplistic. But the truth is, is that enslaved laborers could do all kinds of labor and they did all kinds of labor. So when we turn to college campuses, there are all kinds of things that enslaved laborers were asked to do. Some laborers were um, owned by um, faculty. Some laborers were owned by the institution itself. Um, sometimes the institution hired slave labor. Um, at some institutions, enslaved laborers literally built or provided labor to build the institution. Um, they took care of faculty, students, staff who were part of the institution. Um, at UVA, for example, um, and a number of other institutions, um, uh, enslaved people were laborers for the people who provided food and housing, even if they weren't uh, employed directly by the institution. They were employed by people the institution employed. Um, they, off, they often had very intimate relationships with um, faculty, uh, with students. Um, in some institutions, but not as many as you might think, um, enslaved uh, 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 students brought slaves to campus, but that turns out to have been more problematic in some cases for institutions. Um, they would prefer that uh, uh, students not bring their slaves to campus because it created this other you know, layer of, uh, uh, frankly, potential for abuse. I guess one thing to say about slaves on campus is that they're found all over campus. They're cooking. They're taking care of the grounds. They're making sure that in places where students or faculty live, the house is warm enough, the house is taken care of. They're taking care of the classrooms. They're doing all kinds of labor on campuses, repairs, etc. What's very clear, though, is the racial divide on campuses. There are no scholars of African descent on these campuses. Um, there are no, uh, where slavery exists, there are no um, students right, of African descent on campuses where slavery is practiced. If we think about higher education at this time before the Civil War, we're really talking about a handful of people of African descent who can even get a college degree. They're actively excluded from universities, from higher education, except for places, of course, like Oberlin College, which were founded explicitly to be integrated institutions. So if you are a black person on a campus, you're probably an enslaved person or some other kind. If you're free, you're a laborer. And you, it's very clear that even if you're not owned by a particular white person on campus or you're not employed by that particular white person, the rules of uh, racial supremacy, of white supremacy, mean that anyone on campus really can order you to do something uh, can tell you that you're out of line. And if you, so at UVA, the University of Virginia, the students were particularly rambunctious. I'll just use that word. <laughs> but if, if those students abused an enslaved person, which they often did physically, say whipping or playing tricks on them or whatever, 
the offense was not to the enslaved person, but to that person's owner, right? And this, of course, is replicated in slave law. The person, if if you know, if someone harmed an enslaved person physically, they didn't, in the law, harm that person. They harmed the property, right, of of the owner. And so the harm, who the person who would take them to court and who would get redress, would be the owner. So just to be clear that. The, even on college campuses, that um, racial structure of power was very much in place. Right. And you know, this is why I'm glad I asked, because that was really something that I really wondered about while reading as someone, you know, in graduate school with one of your, you know, great colleagues. Hi, Dr. Dunbar. How you doing? I know you're listening. Um, and so... Um, you know, for me, you know, that was a question I had coming out of the book, or, you know, really big time. Uh, but since we are on the subject of slavery, as obviously we are with the book, um, you know, one of the things I was wondering was about the question of indigenous sla- uh, enslavement. W- was that anywhere in the volume or has that ever been a, a part of your own research? Right. That's a great question. And I would say that the person um, who's done the most on that in a broad way right now um, in terms of institutions of our education is Craig Wilder's book in his book. He doesn't really talk about that in the essay he did for us, but he does talk about um, native uh, people on campus in this early period. And again, during this, uh, particularly before the Revolutionary War, but also shortly after a period of time when both um, African people of African descent and people of native descent are subject to potentially being enslaved or being in some form of bondage, maybe indentured service. And so his book really gives more uh, detail about that. We don't have anyone in the book um, that I can recall really talking at any length about Native American enslavement or even Native American removal and what that means for um, these higher education institutions. But that's certainly, I I will look forward to hearing more about that. I'm sure someone's going to be working on that or probably is already working on that. And I think Christina Snyder just published a book about Native American people in higher education that came out last year. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to look at that. So I think that's definitely, uh, you know, we're more than ready for more work on that uh, material. I'll add to... As you may know, at Northwestern, um, a few years ago, they did a project uh, about um, John Evans, who's the founder of Evanston and one of the founders of Northwestern, and his connection to the Sand Creek Massacre. And so both Northwestern University and the University of Denver published uh, reports about um, John Evans' role, role in the Sand Creek Massacre and what it means for their institutions. And for anyone who's interested, those are available free online. And they make good reading in tandem because they come to slightly different, or for some people, greatly different um, conclusions about what the culpability of Evans and of their institutions are in, in terms of the Sand Creek Massacre. Great. Y'all, and this is why y'all got to listen to the podcast because, you know, you might get blessed with some more books to read as if you did not already have more uh, to do and more to read under quarantine. But, you know, that's another story and another podcast for another day. Um, but, you know, thinking about just, you know, the importance of history and the importance of of uh, our, our work as historians, um, what is this volume um 
you know, in terms of your work and the work of folks in the volume, what does it really tell us about what historians, what historians rather, uh, can do to structurally change society? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, there's, you know, the classic uh, statement, I think, that all historians believe that if you don't know the history of where you come from, you don't really know what you're in, right? You don't know where you stand. You don't know what your foundation is. And so a rebalancing of our history, not to do away with the founding fathers, but to understand their world better, to understand that they were in a world in which owning slaves was a sign of wealth and status. It was a uh, having power over enslaved people was understood to be the way of the world and, and a sign of status. And um, that uh, to undo that understanding took a long time, you know, and in that process of both of enslaving and then undoing slave uh, slavery, um, some of the inequalities that we still live with today still exist. And unless we understand how deep that earlier process was and how impactful it was for so many, for everyone, we can't really understand why we continue to have the inequalities and the racism we have now. Not to say that there weren't other things that happened in between. Jim Crow added its layer uh, to racism as well. But we really have to understand all of those layers in order to understand what we need to do to undo some of the inequities we deal with now. So historians always have that role of trying to be honest about the past as much as we're able. We all have our own blinders about that. But we really, you know, it's up to us to do that work. The other piece I think that's been more challenging for people who do work on slavery in universities is to really think about now in real time, if we know this history. So for example, one recent history that came up, the University of Pennsylvania, their medical school uh, used uh, the cadavers of former, of enslaved people. You know, there was a cadaver trade. This is something Dinah Ramey Berry has discussed in her recent book, um, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, that not only were people sold during their lifetimes, they were sold after their death. What does that mean for the knowledge and the wealth that the University of Pennsylvania created by becoming this preeminent institution, right? And so is there something that we should be doing now to change the ways the institution works? If we understand that it is rooted in these incredible inequalities, what we today see as immoral, you know, these are not the way we run society. Are there ways in which our institutions have a legacy that they're still living into based on those kinds of inequities? And is there something we need to do to rectify that? I think that question still we're still debating. Uh, probably the thing that most institutions have done is uh, renaming, thinking about the symbolism on their campuses. So adding in people of color who were important to the history of the institution, recognizing the labor, uh, enslaved and free, that contributes to creating these institutions. Um, uh, you know, uh, at, at times um, offering apologies, in some cases uh, going back and awarding degrees to people who should have gotten real degrees at the time, but were not able to do so because of racism. All of those things 
are symbolic actions, but they have meaning because when we're on campuses and we see the names of only enslavers or only whites or only men, you know, there is a subtle feeling of exclusion that students in our, our very diverse student bodies can feel, our diverse faculties can feel. But there's also the question of, are there more material ways in which institutions should address uh, uh, these histories, the legacies of these histories. Um, I think uh, the University of Virginia right now is doing um, some work both on campus in terms of names. They're supposed to unveil um, an amazing new monument to um, uh, enslaved workers on campus uh, in mid-April. Um, also work with the community um, in Charlottesville, the Black community, which of course has been a source of labor since the founding of the institution. So thinking about the inequalities, the inequities that the university may have fostered, both intellectually and through labor practices and how they can begin to redress some of those inequities. Um, The other thing, though, is beyond, say, just the community surrounding an individual institution is also the question of, if we think of our university, our higher education system as an ecosystem, If one part of the ecosystem is immensely wealthy and the other part is not, should there be some equalization happening there? So our historically black colleges and universities are in dire straits, certainly since 2008, but probably have never been as funded as healthily as, say, Ivy League institutions or some very wealthy private institutions. Is there a way to redress that? The University of Virginia um, is piloting a program where they are partnering with HBCUs to provide um, assistance, uh, concrete assistance. So when you apply for a federal grant, for example, there's a whole financial uh, infrastructure of accounting that you need that many HBCUs may not have or may not have enough money to support fully. So UVA is partnering with institutions that want to apply for grants like that and helping to provide that infrastructure, that back office, if you will. And I think that's a wonderful example of providing assistance um, to an institution that can do more if it has a little bit more resource. So I think that, you know, we really need to begin thinking creatively about the ecosystem of our higher education system. And um, we, you know, we've lived on this competitive, you know, am I ranked number 10 or number 1000 or whatever. But to be honest, you know, different institutions serve different needs, serve different student bodies, have different specialties. I think we need to be thinking collaboratively. Not every institution maybe has every specialty. And so how do we share different specialties? How do we share resources? How do we share libraries? If you know, we have this wonderful, for example, interlibrary loan system. So if my institution can't afford the book, at least I can borrow it from a better endowed institution. How could we expand those ideas? And I think that would be another way to undo some of the legacies of slavery um, and the legacies of in- inequality that we still deal with that went even beyond slavery into the Jim Crow era, really until the 60s, through the 60s. Yeah, yeah. And all those are exceptional because what they do, like you were saying in this moment where people are wondering, what can historians do, 
you know, what's the utility of a history degree or even a history PhD outside of teaching, right? What, what's the utility of what we do and, and uh, the, the degrees that we earn? Well, Dr. Harris just showed y'all there is a whole big old world out there that we can help affect. So let's go do the work. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Um, a question I had, which connects to the previous, uh, what have been some of, you know, the major challenges you have encountered, um, you know, on campus and in the community doing this kind of work? You know, I, I certainly didn't go to graduate school thinking I would do any of this. <laughs> so one of the things is that, um, you know, I went to, yeah, I guess I would say a fairly traditional graduate school. I wasn't thinking about being an administrator. I wasn't thinking about structural change in that way. I thought that I would make change through writing and teaching. And on the one hand, uh, when I led co-led the Transforming Community Project, I learned an incredible amount about the university, about being an administrator, about the kinds of change you can make if you sort of step away from just, quote unquote, just teaching and writing to leading. And that was um, amazing work. It was gratifying every day, um, even when it was difficult. And I'm not remembering any difficulties today, although I'm sure there were. But it was really, you know, I could see that people so appreciated the opportunity to really talk about these issues, to work through these issues, that these were things that in the day-to-day -day life of the university, issues of race, the history of race, how do we communicate across diversity, you know, across lines of diversity to come to a new understanding? You know, institutions often want that to happen, but they don't provide the space for it to happen. And so it was really amazing to see people really step into the opportunity and to be able to foster opportunities for people. But what I feel like sometimes I gave up a little bit, well, and that was a creative space also for me as well, but what I gave up was, you know, time alone, the kind of time that you need alone when you want to write books and you want to, you know, uh, um, do new research. You know, many, um, some of my books are, you know, I guess most of my books right now are not my, you know, they're edited volumes, which are wonderful and have been wonderful collaborative projects. But I had other writing projects that I wanted to do. So I learned, you know, it's hard to do administrative work and individual authored works. And I learned to collaborate, to continue to write, you know, my work with Dinah Berry on um, sexuality and slavery, and then our work together on slavery and freedom in Savannah was wonderful. And we co-wrote an essay for, for the Savannah book, and that was really great. But, uh, you know, I really, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward now to having time to write my own books on sort of my my timetable, not an institutional timetable, if that makes sense. Very much does. Very much does. And uh, don't worry, I will ask you at the end uh, what that is, because I'm sure you are yearning to talk about it. And uh, these airwaves are yours, right? We always want to hear what's new um, in, in the work of uh, the scholars that we have on New Books and AFAM. Um, and, uh, this is your second time on here too. Um, you know, and I want to ask, uh, one more question, um, about administrative duties, um, because I'm, I'm just, you know, always fascinated with, you know, how, how folks think about, you know, leadership and, and all these different things. And so, 
Um, I think it is very interesting when you mentioned when you started grad school, you had a few thoughts about, you know, maybe the path that you're currently on, um, you know, that your work would take you to, you know, Emory and the work that you're doing with slavery and the university. But looking back, what are some skills you think it takes to be an effective administrator and an effective leader? Uh, something specific like a project like you're doing, right? And, and those in the volume are contributing to as well. And especially since you're dealing with delicate subject matters and maybe a connection to a community uh, that's been kind of strained. Yeah, I mean, I think what I brought to it was curiosity and an openness to listening. I didn't have a set agenda. I, I tried to create an open space, like a, sometimes people call that a sandbox. We'll put a sandbox, you know, a virtual sandbox so that you can just come in and we can play around and we see what happens. And I was really open to that process of let's just see what happens. Um, it was also a moment in the institution. This is at Emory where um, we were in a strategic planning moment. It was before 2008. And so we all had a lot of money. <laughs> Very, very different time. And um, so people, I also was in a space where people were willing to allow me to experiment. Um, Earl Lewis in particular was a real champion and supporter of, of what was for me an experiment. And so I was really lucky. It was a moment in time where I was really lucky. Um, the other thing I think any uh, administrator or leader needs to be honest about are, is their own limits and can they find someone to build that other side? Right. So I would say um, I had uh, my long term co director, um, Jody Usher, Jonelle Usher. Um, she um, uh, had an immense knowledge of uh, restorative justice work on a very individual, personal level. So she was sometimes able to bring this very personal side to the work where right? I was thinking intellectually, she brought this sort of personal, emotional side. And so we really, I think, balanced each other out well. We also had, uh, she understood uh, finances better than I did. And so in terms of budget work, that's never going to be a strength of mine. She did a great job with that. So I think um, if you can assemble a team and realize that you don't have all the answers, but you can find the answers and give people the opportunity to present you with answers that you might not find initially. I think that's really critical in um, any leadership position and to be open to that and not threatened by it. Um, it's just really important. And certainly in higher education, we have so much brain power on these campuses. Certainly <laughs> we should be asking people what they think, you know, how would you solve this problem? Come play in the sandbox. So, so that was the best part of it was getting to meet people from all over and just offering this opportunity to, well, what do you think? How can we solve this? How can we solve this little part of the problem? Is there a bigger thing we can do? It was really great. Outstanding. And uh, one of the things that it seems as well uh, to, to be a great administrator, you have to be okay uh, and, and go with the tide of surprises. So, you know, on that note, did anything uncovered in the essays, um, you know, by the essays, researchers or graduate student contributors actually surprise you? It wasn't always surprising. I think the story I still, the set of stories I still keep coming back to is the University of Virginia and um, the violence of the students 
at that time um, is still surprising to me. And they've since, I think maybe in the fall, they came out with a book that is just on the history of slavery at the University of Virginia, a really wonderful book. But I, I still, when I read about some of the histories at the University of Virginia and the violence that was part of it, it still surprises me, you know, a little bit. Um, just uh, how violent the students were. And that, of course, is endemic to slavery. Um, uh, I guess it's the contrast between, uh, you know, a place like UVA, of course, linked to Thomas Jefferson, you know, very elitist and all these things. But that's underpinned by incredible violence. And I think in this country, we still have a hard time with bringing those two things together how you could have incredible beauty, incredible art, all of these things. And yet it's underpinned by incredible brutality at its foundation. And, um, and histories, sometimes uh, histories of that time period don't always talk in enough detail about that brutality. And so, so I still get sometimes surprised when I read um, work that is really honest about that brutality, not because I don't know, but sometimes when you have it detailed out, you realize at a deeper level what the day-to-day experience was like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I brought that up um, as a point because, you know, I have a friend, uh, Brandy Waters. She is uh, Yale now, but she was one of the graduate student contributors um, on the Harvard and sl- uh, slavery uh, contribution um, and so it is really interesting just learning about these different stories about how slavery uh, really influenced, how, how slavery's influence is really everywhere, right? And the physical landscape and, you know, and, and really every fabric of this nation. Um, and so speaking of changing the landscape, right, in a way, um, you had former Brown University president Ruth Simmons um, as a contributor to the book. Describe the significance of former President Simmons uh, and her work and and everything that she's done and uh, her specific contribution to the project, too. Oh, yeah. She, you know, thinking of an administrator who's creative, who allows for creativity, I mean, she really stands out, of course, you know, um, the first um, uh, Black woman president of an Ivy League institution, the first African-American president of an Ivy League institution. Um, you know, uh, I think it's a group of alumni who brought this idea to her that what is the history, this question of what is the history of slavery at Brown and what should we be thinking about? And she really, you know, demonstrated what an administrator can do, which is not always hands-on, right? Sometimes as an administrator, what you need to do is just be, to create the space and let other people get on with the work. And that's what she did. But her essay also shows her deep intellectual engagement. So she's not simply, quote unquote, simply an administrator, but this is someone who thinks deeply intellectually about these issues. Um, So I I think she really exemplifies uh, the possibilities of of this kind of work. Um, The report from Brown, um, from the steering committee, you know, uh, laid out the history, laid out many different possibilities uh, for redress um, from, uh, you know, campus art 
renaming uh, scholarships, uh, engagement with the community, uh, the creation of a center. So I think she also, um, in inaugurating that investigation, also raised the question of what is it that universities can do? And I think Brown sort of helped us think about that. And I think other institutions are going to pick that up and take it further. Exactly, exactly. Um, And I want to go actually to a passage from President Simmons' essay to further underscore what she was uh, really up against, um, uh, if I may. (laughs) Um, And this comes from page 218. And I quote, it's from Dr. Simmons here. I received a phone call from an eminent scholar and dear friend expressing concern that I had perhaps lost my mind in taking on such a controversial subject. And Dr. Simmons is discussing a uh, personal interaction she had with a friend after learning about Brown's effort that she led to better understand uh, the university's relationship to slavery. Years later, I really wonder, like, if President, first of all, is President Simmons still friends with this, you know, person? Um, and it and it really shows how sometimes uh, even friends might not believe in our work, which is very unfortunate. Well, but she, it was a risk. I mean, here she's the first African American president of an Ivy League institution, definitely. I can imagine many people giving her that advice. I can imagine many people in her position saying, I can't do this or leaving it to the last year that they're in office, right? To say, okay, now I can do this. I've demonstrated all these other things that I'm a leader, you know, and now I can set this up and set it running. And as I leave, having proven myself in other ways, but instead she took this as proof of her leadership as well, right? She took the challenge. She said, I, you know, I'm going to take this on too. And, and not everyone would do that. Even uh, not every white president would do that. If we look at Harvard and um, Drew Faust, who is a slavery scholar, I think it was only in her final year that Harvard finally had a day in a long conference of Har- on Harvard and slavery. Um, so you know, not, uh, people take their leadership in different ways. And I would say that, uh, Ruth Simmons had a a lot to lose if that project had somehow gone wrong. I, you know, it's hard to imagine what that wrong would have been, but it was very controversial at the time. Very controversial. Now that, you know, it's become almost necessary for institutions to investigate their histories of slavery. But at the time, no one, you know, no one, few. I mean, Emory took it on willingly after a year of racial strife and Brown and Alabama. But really, most institutions were not with the power of the institution behind it, right? We're not willing to really face up to the history. Faculty at the institutions or students at the institutions might do it. But most institutions did not have their president behind them saying, yes. I, I want this to happen. I want you to do it. And we're going to talk about it. That was very unusual at the time. As a leader in the conversation about slavery in the university, 
like what does it feel like and what does it mean to you seeing changes that you've been working on you know actually happen you know in in your present to actually experience them right like what does that feel like oh that's interesting i don't know i mean it's funny you uh evelyn brooks higginbotham did the was part of the closing keynote panel at the conference and at the time she said this is the beginning of a new field of history and she says this in her closing essay for the book as well and i was like what this is not a new field of history <laughs> I didn't believe her, but she was right. It has really become its own. So academically, it's its its own, you know, there's a lot more to be done and a lot more that people are doing in terms of just recovering this history. Um, in terms of the structural changes, I mean, I, I, I think I hinted earlier, there's still a lot of structural change that could be done. Um, I'm not sure always what that is. I, I think that we will continue to explore that. Um, I, I don't know. I, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I thought about it that way. It's, it's felt so much in motion. Like even when we were working on the book, we'd hear about, you know, I think Georgetown, you know, their project came up and we tried to get an essay from them and, then in the end, um, I think it was the president decided it wasn't the right time because they're still in, they're still they still are in motion, you know, in terms of figuring out um, how they want to address the issue. Um, of course, the UNC Chapel Hill incident where they toppled the statue that happened the fall, you know, right as we were trying to put finishing touches on the introduction, and we had to change the introduction to account for that because we start with the Silent Sam statue in the beginning, so. Um, it, it, it very much feels like work that's still in progress. Um, but it's also work that I feel like I'm not right now actively engaged in pushing forward. I'm just sort of watching, um, to see where it's going to go from here. Not in a bad way, but just, you know, yeah. Of course, of course. Uh, we got to have you on for the third time. Uh, but the but the next on you know for for your first time as a single authored uh, a single book author right um, single authored book rather right and so um, before we close uh, let's talk a bit about uh, legacy here. Um, what do you see the legacy of slavery in the university to be, um, along with you know the conference that y'all convened in twenty eleven. Um, and also just directionally, where is this particular field going? Well, I think one of the things, um, one of the legacies is to recognize that there has been a kind of diversity on college campuses right from the beginning. I feel like the history of African Americans in this country and the history of slavery is that we're constantly saying we were here. (laughs) We were here from the beginning. We were here, (laughs) you know, our labor contributed to this and, This is not foreign to us. We are not foreign to this country. We are integral. And so this is another example of the use or even misuse of black labor. But the fact is we were here. And this is not just somebody else's. This is ours. We have a claim. We have sweat equity in everything in this country. And so stop excluding us. I mean, that's just a very fundamental thing. And in fact, maybe you owe us something. 
And that's not, you know, so that I think that's really fundamental. I think rewriting histories to understand that is also fundamental, that if you're going to talk about founding mothers and fathers, these are not just the people, you know, in the room where it happened, so to speak, not to mention that who was in the room where it happened were probably some other mothers and fathers, too. We really have to understand the range of people that contributed to this country, willingly and unwillingly. And um, for, for better or worse, we're all still here to some degree. The descendants of those people are still here. And um, I think that's really important. I think that one of the amazing things that I've seen is the um, uh, students and faculty, but students succeeding generations are more and more aware that they need to know this history, right? So when I ask students why they're taking my African-American history class, which is almost always a class on slavery in some ways, like, I didn't get enough of this history in high school, I need to know. I need to know. I need to understand this. This is critical to understanding, to my life, to my understanding of the world around me. And so I think that that's going to continue to expand the work. I'm hoping that um, the investigation very specifically of slavery and universities can lead to uh, understanding labor systems in universities, inequality in universities, um, you know, and thinking through how we can do things differently and who, um, how do I want to put it? How do we expand our understanding of who universities are for? Um, so, um, I, you know, I think all of these things are about deepening um, equity, you know, deepening exclu- inclusion, excuse me, and doing away with exclusion. I mean, those are sort of very broad, but... Um, I think they're necessary. Very much so. Very much so. Uh, But before we transition to our close, uh, you spoke about uh, labor systems, right? And um, as a graduate student labor, right, as as I see myself, I cannot leave, you know, our conversation without asking you about the role of graduate student activism uh, steering the work on not only the formal book slavery in the university, but um, on the ground. Like, like, can you can you explain to us the importance of graduate student activism? Right, definitely. It's uh, definitely students have been at the core of a lot of this work for a long time um, from the beginning. I mean, Mark Auslander, when he did his work, he did it through coursework. He had uh, he would offer courses, and undergraduates would do the work, the research work the community work, work alongside him to uh, do that work of repair, if you will, of recovering these histories. Um, uh, certainly, if we think about the events of the 2015 school year, right, uh, where students all across the country uh, came up with a series of demands, many of them involving a deeper recognition of the role of slavery in institutions, uh, that uh, student uprising, if you will, resulted in um, schools like Yale deciding to change uh, the names of uh, parts of their institution, Calhoun College, right? The name Calhoun was removed. Um, and to acknowledge more fully inequities within the institution. So uh, student activism has uh, has always been critical. 
Um, the challenge is sometimes that students are there for four years and then they leave. And then it's still, you know, the faculty and administrators still have to uh, keep going and have to, you know, uh, uh, be committed to the work. And some, you know, to be honest, I know sometimes <laughs> administrations just wait for somebody to graduate or wait for a class to graduate and then think that they're off the hook. And so students who become alums have to come back and still present that challenge. And sometimes they have to help finance that challenge, um, which is not something people want to think about, even, but even in very wealthy institutions. Um, providing funding for some of the changes that you want to see is the way to make it happen. And um, uh, that's, that's a critical part. So it, it's change. The pressure to change doesn't end on graduation day for students if they have a commitment to that institution, right? Now it could be that they go to another institution and have a commitment to making change at that other institution, right? Or, you know, um, so it doesn't, you know, I'm not saying that they have to remain committed to the institution they graduated from for their whole lives. But if, if people are really interested in change in that way, they really have to think about not only during the four years as an undergrad or maybe six years as a graduate student, but are there other ways later where they might come back and lead other efforts to create change? There it is. There it is. Well, uh, we have come to the end of our discussion. Uh, but before we depart, you know, let's let's chat about, you know, what is next for you, Dr. Harris? What can we look forward to uh, discussing with you next on New Books in African-American Studies? <laughs> sure. I've been working on a project on um that uses memoir and my family history to talk about the history of New Orleans. So I grew up in New Orleans. I've learned that my family, <clears throat> my father's side was there on both sides. Of my family was there from the antebellum era. So I've been um, working on a book that um, explores the history of New Orleans and the history of race there and the history of the environment there through my personal history and, the, and my family's history. So I'm hoping in the next two to three years to have that published finally. Um, it's a work that I began doing uh, soon after Katrina, which kind of highlighted some issues for me. But um, if it began in the years of Katrina, it's being completed in the years of climate change. And um, so it's definitely book ended by environmental issues, but it also talks about issues of race and class and of um, uh Desegregation and resegregation, I guess, would be the other things I would think about, um, talk about in that book. Yes. And uh, I will still be around doing this whole interview thing. Um, and I look forward to our next discussion. Uh, and also, thank you for accepting my invitation to discuss your new edited volume, Slavery and the University, Histories and Legacies. Um, and uh, can't forget about your co-editors as well. Um, and uh, they are uh, Dr. James T. Campbell, who is the Edgar E. Robinson Professor of United States History at Stanford University, and Dr. Alfred L. Brophy, who is the D. Paul Jones Chairholder in Law at the University of Alabama School of Law in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And please also, audience members, support university presses like the University of Georgia Press, B. 
because in these days and times, we need to please support uh, the university presses publishing this, these amazing pieces of scholarship and these edited volumes like Slavery in the University. And to Dr. Harris, I really enjoyed our interview today. And it also gives me the opportunity to thank you personally uh, for your first book. Um, and Dr. Harris's first book, In, in the Shadow of Slavery, African-Americans in New York City. Uh, from 16, uh, 1626 to 1863, uh, because my mom is actually from New York. And uh, she, I remember growing up her telling me that she didn't really know much about, you know, black folks in the city when she was growing up in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and so, you know, it was great to be able to give her, um, you know, your your book um, and she, and she loved it like she didn't even go to sleep uh when she read it she just read it all the way through so testament to you um and uh and also you know once again thank you so much for chatting with me it's been a pleasure and an honor to do this once again thanks so much thanks so much for inviting me great questions really great conversation i really enjoyed it thank you thank y'all for listening once again to new books in african american studies a channel on the New Books Network. Please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts because we need to know how we're doing. So how else are we going to know? Appreciate y'all in advance. And once again, I am your host, Adam McNeil from New Books and African American Studies, signing off over and out.